I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Dr. Mark Golston, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so glad to be here with you, Kristen. This is our first date. (laughs) Exactly. And we were set up on our quote unquote date by the amazing, the mental health comedian, Frank King, who is co-hosting with me today. Hey, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da. Hi, Frank. Hi, Mark. So thanks for setting us up, Frank, because we're doing all kinds of amazing things together now with Mark, and that makes me very happy. And I know from, well, at least you've pretended anyway, Mark, if, if you're not happy, you've hit it well, but it seems like you're happy about it too. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to have Frank on because I just listened to him and my voice goes from the pit of my stomach down there, slow <laughs> to right out there. I'm, I can feel it coming out of my mouth. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> Yes, well, you know, you need to crank up the RPMs, Mark. As uh, when Mark and I did our first call, I guess he said to me after a few minutes, "Look, you can you can crank the RPMs down." And I I think Mark thought I was acting or putting on or whatever. And I, you know, I said and to Mark, "This Look, is how you are." <laughs> yeah, it's a deal. I, I have one speed. You know, I got to there and somebody broke off the control handle, so this is it. This is all. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we work well together because I go at that speed too. Well, for listeners, you guys. so here's the hidden s- secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have insomnia, and sometimes the way I fall asleep is I listen to my recordings. <laughs> oh, <laughs> honey, so do I. <laughs> okay, but a bump. Hey, oh, putting, you guys to get, putting you guys together may be my the best blind date I ever set up. <laughs> and we are joking, listeners, this is, since this is on my show and you guys always get concerned when I start talking about dating. We're talking about dating in terms of working together. We're not yes. dating, dating. So please, listeners, no. don't send in a bunch of emails saying, who is it now this time? It's, no, that's not what this is. No. <laughs> so, Mark, tell our listeners, I mean, they know because I just did a lovely intro of, you know, your background and so on. So they know what you do, but there's a project that you're a part of and it's really exciting. And hopefully we're going to do something that I can bring up on this show related to it. Um, but 
tell our listeners about the project and why you're wanting to do this, why this is an initiative for you. Well, the project is called Stay Alive. It's a documentary. The subtitle is An Intimate Conversation About Suicide Prevention. And it's 72 minutes long. If you go to the YouTube channel, it gets chopped up into seven or eight segments with little introductions from the main people. I'm, I'm the suicide expert. And we have Kevin Hines. And Kevin Hines has, is well known around the world because he's the young man. He's not that young anymore, but he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and he survived. Mm-hmm. They made a movie of his life story called Suicide, The Ripple Effect which won the best uh, documentary Oscar award a month ago at the BAFTA awards in, in London. And mm. he, he speaks all around the world and he saves lives because he's a motivational speaker, but, but what motivates people is his story. And, uh, and then the third person is a Japanese pop singer named Reiko and she's been touched by depression in her life and she's a suicide prevention advocate. So we sat down and filmed for about five to six hours and the result of it is the 70 minute documentary. Hmm. I'm excited about it because um, I was a suicide specialist, suicide prevention specialist for over 25 years and I'm knocking on wood, even though it's veneer in front of me here, uh, but I'm knocking on it anyway, because uh, none of the people I saw killed themselves, but I, I couldn't figure out how, but I figured it out recently. And the how is I think people felt felt by our conversations. Yeah. I think people felt less alone and that coincides with my one of my views, and, and and I'd like to know if you can crank in on this, Frank, uh, uh, with your with your high paced voice. Pick, pick pick any voice you want to use, Frank. Uh, <laughs> so my, my, so my uh, that'll do that'll do right. <laughs> but my, so my observation about people who feel suicidal is is that people don't kill themselves. By de- for depression, they don't kill themselves from loss of job or loss of uh, a relationship. Those all contribute to it, but there's hundreds of millions of people who go through that that don't kill themselves. But something I've observed is that the moment people do take their lives, they're feeling despair. And I break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R. Uh, so they feel unpaired with the reasons to live. They feel unpaired with the future, hopeless, helpless, powerless, useless, worthless, meaningless. And when they feel unpaired with all of those, they finally feel pointless to go on and they pair with death to just take the pain away. And if you can pair with people in what I I call the dark night of the soul and you go to where they're at and you don't push them. You basically keep them company inside the abscess in their soul. Mm -hmm. You hold their hand there. Uh, They start to cry with relief. They start to cry with relief that little bits of hope trickle in 
also, since I have this way of going into their despair with them, I can tell you that they can't go to where you want them to go. When you give them solutions and advice, mm -hmm. they will nod from the neck up and they'll be polite because you're there to help them. And they'll say, oh yeah, that sounds good. But you have to go where they're at and unconditionally love them. And, and when they feel that, uh, they lean into it. In fact, I asked a number of people over the years, what, why, what did we do that caused you to not kill yourself? And, and I'd be interested how each of you weigh in because I don't want to just be me gabbing on like this. <laughs> no. Oh, well, no. Trust me, we'll interrupt. <laughs> yeah. A number, a number of them said, and this will give you a sense of how important empathy is. A number of them said, you're the only person in my life who I put a, a smile on. You're the only person in my life that enjoys me without my having to do anything. Mm. I worry and scare my parents. My brother and sister think I'm just manipulating my parents, and that's at least partially true. The, 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 other, the other therapists I've seen are really well-intentioned, but they're checking boxes. That's right. what they do. You know, are you sleep? How's your sleep? And and I know they're well-intentioned, but and I remember one said to me, you know, Doc, when you don't feel enjoyed by anyone, you feel like a burden to everyone. Yeah. When you internalize, I'm just a burden. I'm behind all my peers because I'm stuck in this. So if I'm just a burden, why don't I relieve the world of me? And 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 they would say, you know, they, they said I, they said, I didn't think you were lying, Doc, when you smiled at me. I did think you were crazy. <laughs> what? Why the heck would you be happy to see me? I remember one person came in. They kept looking over their shoulder. I said, What are you looking uh -huh. at? I don't know what you're smiling at. So, so weigh in how you think any of that might fit, how it may not fit, or from your own experience. Frank, go. <laughs> oh, uh, did he stop talking? I dozed off. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I was sleeping while I was talking, too. It's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Strange, strange bout of insomnia there. Um, the, yeah, you know, I was one of those two out of 10 who I was hell bent on dying by suicide. You know, they say eight out of 10 are ambivalent. So if somebody comes along and interrupts the cascade downward, you can save them. But I wasn't, I wasn't going to reach out. I wasn't going to tell anybody. I had a plan. It was detailed. And the only thing that stopped me was that my life insurance, I hadn't passed the two year mark that uh, delineates the suicide clause, meaning, mm -hmm. I was at 22 months, and if I killed myself, my wife would get the premiums back, but she wouldn't get the million dollars in death benefits. So I had to wait two months and a day uh, to do it. So I just uh, what stopped me was I the rational part of my brain still operating refused to leave her not only heartbroken but destitute. So um, I don't think there's anything anybody could have said to me. I don't think perhaps there was something, but. Uh, you know, I I, I, I think I fell in that uh, two out of 10 category. 
fortunately, after, you know, waiting, I had to wait two months. Um, well, and, and uh, Mark, we've talked about this. The, the fact that I knew at two months and a day that I could do it probably kept me from doing it. As you're, didn't you have a, a patient who said, if it weren't for my chronic suicidality, I would have killed myself a long time ago? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's uh, knowing that they always had a way to relieve the pain if they couldn't take it anymore enable them to endure the pain yes and that's how i survived that last two months knowing that you know well uh hopefully you know maybe, maybe things will change maybe maybe and it did the bankruptcy went through the phone call stopped and i broke the service on my depression took a deep breath but i knew you know i knew i knew i'd already crossed that that barrier that i'm gonna you know I, i'm i was already okay with doing it so it gave me the strength oddly to make it those two months in a day yeah. Let me, you, let me ask you something, Frank, because we talked about this in my podcast, and uh, I can refer listeners. I, are, I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, uh, and it's not just focused on suicide. It's focused on people who wake up and, and their life changes. Uh, and I interviewed uh, Frank for an upcoming podcast. And something I ran by you, Frank, and I'll run by you and Kristen again, uh, because um, and, and one of the things that blew my mind when you mentioned chronic suicidality is I realized that I've had that. Maybe that's one of the reasons I became a suicide specialist. And, and it wasn't so much uh, I can always kill myself. It's been a lower level. You know, if I don't wake up tomorrow, it'd be okay. If the plane crashes, it would be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and when I drilled down into that, and thank you for bringing it up, uh, uh, Frank in my mind, uh, I think what I went down to is when I would feel an let's say deep, deep hurt or discouragement or something rather, and I reached inside, I didn't come up with anything to balance it. And so I believe I have this belief that uh, and it's being reinforced by my becoming a grandfather for the first time a little over a month ago, is that, uh, I, I have this model, and I'm going to run it by the two of you, that when we are born, we are half-baked, meaning uh, uh, our, uh, our nature has given birth to us. That, but for the next six months, to be fully baked, that's where early nurturing comes in. And I got to tell you, as I hold my grandson, and he's just starting to make eye contact, and... Uh, and as I'm looking into his eyes, I'm imagining him saying to me, uh, am I going to have a good life? Uh, was it a good idea that I was born? Um, this pain I'm feeling, I don't even, I'm, I'm too small. I don't even know where my hands are. You know, he hasn't made, he hasn't figured that out. He's so new. Uh, but that pain I'm feeling, it's like, a, it's like a, a dog looking at you when they're in the, their pain. They don't know what it is. Can you make it stop? And I, and fortunately, he has a very connected, love, loving mom, my daughter, my son-in-law. But I was imagining, look at that powerlessness and helplessness. He's feeling pain. And what if I looked into his eyes with, would you finish feeding already? I got a spinning class to go. To. <laughs> <laughs> or would you go to school oh. already? Uh, or uh, let's say I'm reaching out to 
my co-parent uh, and, and, and my grandson's looking up at us and, and he hears me saying, can you feed this thing already? I've been at it an hour. He won't even take it. And so I'm thinking, wow, what if my, what if my grandson is internalizing all that stuff? Mm-hmm. And then what came in was the work of Eric Erickson who developed something called the psychosocial stages of life. And at the very beginning, he talks about basic trust or basic mistrust. And I'm thinking, wow, we're laying the seeds now for my grandson to have basic trust as opposed to basic mistrust. So what I'm getting at, and thank you for enduring this long story that was <laughs> five minutes long, but, uh, and, and, and Kristen, you know, wake up, uh, you know, Frank, when, when I give you a hint. <laughs> I'll give you the, I'll give you the thirty. I'll give you the thirty second signal. Were but, you saying something? I'm sorry. But what I was thinking is, let's say that's the core of my grandchild, hmm. and he's not aware of it. Except there's something way down deep that doesn't feel right. And in the next six months, he's going to develop a little bit of power. He'll recognize how to use his arms, his legs. He'll develop some mastery, and he'll say, "Oh, maybe, maybe I'm not so super dependent on those crappy parents." About <laughs> then let's say, wow, let's say two years from now, he's the first one to do something that none of the other two-year-olds do. Wow, that's going to set a huge smile of pride across his parents' lips, mine, and we're going to take credit for it. And then what if he becomes a superstar in kindergarten? Uh, it's going to put a smile on our face. And you know what he's going to think? He's going to think we're really into him. But what we're really into is achievement. Yeah. Nicely on us. And then project that into the star of his little league. Uh, and so you can see how uh, a lot of young children who don't have that, that basic trusting solid core default to achievement because it gets a smile on mom and dad's face. Absolutely. And they think, yeah, and they think the smile is going to be a real connection. But the smile is, uh, uh, wow, you hit a home run. Let's see if you can hit a, a grand slam next time. It's approval, not necessarily connection. That's right. So, yeah. so I'm done there, but you can see how when people reach a point where you do, do with the chronic suicidality, Frank, what I'm, I'm, what I'm throwing up in the air, and I think what I'm feeling at those points where it's okay if I don't wake up, is that there is a hurt a hurt that I can't make go away. And the hurt might be reminiscent of something that I felt way, way back when. And something that I said to myself, I'm never going to go through this again. And I got a temporary respite by achieving my way away from the hurt. But as you said, Kristen, without the connection, I was putting lipstick on a pain. That's right. So, so can you follow tracking that and how might that how explain what we're seeing? Yeah, Frank, you, you had a comment though you wanted to make. Yeah, because I read the article you wrote for Medium, Mark, and, and I got to tell you, I had, my childhood was, was good. Uh, my dad died at 40. I was eight years old. It was my birthday and it was Thanksgiving. So that was a bit of a bummer. But uh, my mom was terribly supportive. Um, you know, she was one of those, uh, you can do anything you put your mind to moms. And, but not, I remember my first F, I got an F in fourth grade and we we're leaving the school and I was, you know, my first F and she goes, Oh honey, F is for fun. 
<laughs> so I think, you know, I think Mark and, and uh, Sarah Gare, who is my co-author on the, the men's mental fitness book, said, how did you grieve when your dad died? How did you and your family grieve? Well, guess what? We didn't. Right. My mom, my mom thought we shouldn't see him, you know, at the funeral home in the viewing. We should remember him as he was. And nobody mentioned him in my house for four years. So she said, look, I know suicide and depression runs in your family, but some of your depression, perhaps thoughts of suicide, may be tied to the uh, the grief that you've never worked through, that you've been carrying around. So she said, look, you need to get a therapist and one who specializes in grief work. So I think that may, and I got a little choked up when she said it, and that was over 50 50 years ago when it happened. So I thought, oh, wait, it struck a nerve. Maybe I, so I will find right. a therapist here locally that does grief work. Try, try this. Uh, I'll do a little bit of a sleight of hand empathy here. Um, <laughs> okay. Interesting way to put it. <laughs> yeah. A little close up magic. It's a trick. It's not really empathy. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let me channel you, Frank. Okay. So tell me and see if you can, uh, you know, lower your comic guard for a second. You can take it back up. And so what I hear you saying is, Kristen, Mark, um, uh, I think what I was feeling was something inside me missed out, missed out on something. Missed out on that time with my dad. Missed out on something that, you know, I try not to think about, but other kids my age, you know, when they went to Little League after age eight or had their dad with them when they graduated high school or, you know, one of those special trips when they were teenagers, just them and their dad. Yeah, I could go along with them and be the kid's friend, but I think I missed out on something. And I'm not angry at him but I'm feeling a little empathy for little Frank, you know, and maybe there's been lots of times when I don't, haven't dwelled on it because why dwell on it? It's not going to change it. He's gone. But I could, but just imagine that there are times when, you know, Frank, when he's not being comedic, uh, growing up as a nine-year-old, 19-year-old, 29-year-old, uh, see if you can fit this in there without trying to make it fit. Uh, maybe there's a part of you down deep that's feeling, I miss my dad. Oh, I yeah. I miss my dad. So, so do you follow what I'm saying? Is that, yeah, it's yeah. Well, that what touched you is, and there's no begrudging here. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not like he did anything that was in his control. Uh, and I'm sharing that with you, not, not to depress you, but I'll, I'll tell you, I have something I call the Dead Mentors Society. I have seven mentors, they've all died. And I think God put mentors into our lives to help reparent us. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When things were missing, and reparent by connecting with us emotionally and connecting with us uh, in a way that would empower us to live into our future. So that's why I had all these mentors and why. I continue to mentor more than 30 people. And it's interesting, whenever I'm feeling down, and I usually get down on myself, uh, like after an interview like this, 
maybe I've made some progress. But after an interview like this in the past, I would have said, geez, Mark, your stories are so long. <laughs> oh, long. Can you speed it up, Mark? I mean, geez, you know, get with it. And I would call on one of my dead mentors and he would talk me down from DEFCON 1 of self-reproach <laughs> into, here's what he'd say. I can pick any of them. Mark, what are you waking me up for? Well, I need your help. Well, I, you know, I, I, you saw my grave. It said R.I.P. So this better be. <laughs> <laughs> what is about? Oh, I was on another show. I kept talking. I kept talking. You know, I hope there's a pony in what I say sometimes because sometimes <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. Well, Mark, did your uh, did your host, the co-host, did they uh, did they hate you? No, I think they liked it. Uh, it, it would they ban you from their life? No, I actually think they want more of me. You know, so what's your problem, Mark? I don't know. And then what happens is I think of those dead mentors, and I remember how they stepped into my life. And here's what I'm getting back to you, Frank. And Frank's thinking, well, I'm, I'm glad you got it back somewhere, Mark. What I think about is as I think of them talking me down from you know, self, whatever, self-criticism, yeah, I begin to remember them. I begin to be grateful for how they were in my life and I begin to miss them. And, and suddenly I, I don't know why I was beating myself up for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I have often thought when someone's of my age or close, loses a parent, a father specifically. A, fr a friend of mine just lost his dad. He was in his mid sixties, I think. And I, I feel for him, but I also have the thought almost every time that, that my dad died at 40. And so, and I, I, I'm, I'm sad that I never got to know him or he to know me as an adult. We never had a beer together. We never got to talk about adult things. Uh, by all reports, he was a great guy, and that—that's what—that's what makes me sad. That's what I miss, and I, I often think when somebody's parent lives, you know, relatively the length of their life is relatively, you know, average. That yes, they're gone, but you had all those extra years that I didn't have. So. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you thinking, Kristen? Why don't you weigh in? <laughs> yeah, that's our time for today, kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. Come back from reading your email. Come back to this. I'm listening intently. I actually was, I've actually closed my eyes not to sleep, but to really just, um, you know, get the empathic hit and send, send it back to you both uh, and feel yours so I can really, um, and thinking, what the heck am I going to say? in this, uh, my listeners know my story. So I'm always, uh, I don't want to bore them by saying it again, but then, you know, it's, it helped, it lends itself to conversations with people that don't, you know, that are going to tune in that are your listeners, Mark, or your listeners, Frank. So what I would say is um, in my experience with this, I definitely suicide was always in the back of my mind. Um, from the time I was very young and my side of that was that I was molested by my father from the time I was five until I was 12 and my way of 
that was normal. I thought that all fathers were supposed to do that to your to their children. But what it did for me was it made me think in my child mind, um, there must be something so horrible about me that that's why this is happening to me. So that's how I internalized it. And I've been in tons of therapy. Thank goodness um, my mother did put me in therapy at 12 when I finally, um, when it finally occurred to me to tell her, you got to get me away from him. Like this is, you have to get me away from him. So I was in therapy immediately and I started speaking about, um, you know, incest and things like that at a time, this is 1984. Um, and you got to know too, that at 12 in 1982, you did not talk about things like that at that time. My father wasn't never investigated for what he did. I was at my school. That's the scene of that time. And my drive was, well, I'm going to freaking talk about this. So I started speaking about it in front of doctors and and nurses and whoever would listen. And I became a peer counselor at school, at high schools and did all, and I did all kinds of things like that when I was starting at the age of 16, because I wanted to be an advocate, you know, for this. So that's my, my drive. So as I've gone through a lot of therapy at different points in my life around this, a lot of different kinds of therapy, anything I could get my hands on, um, it's certainly helped. That's why I love mental health. That's why I even created this network because my healthy parents were my counselors. I mean, those, those were my counselors. Those were my healthy parents. So this was a love letter to those wonderful, you know, counselors that helped me and helped me stay alive and feel a sense of value. But that kind of thing that happens to you when you're that young, there are so many stages that you go through throughout your life unpacking the toxicity that you had put upon you by the person doing something to you and also what you say about yourself as a, as a human being. It takes a long time and many, many, many flavors of that. And I'd say this year is the first time in my entire life where the last thing I would ever want to do is commit suicide. I'm so happy about life and excited and passionate and um, you know, life is amazing. It's very Viktor Frankl with the make purpose of, out of your pain. And I, I feel that. Um, but this is the first year that I haven't, where I've woken up in the morning and said, God, I'm so happy to be here. And I actually remember Sam Webb, who is one of the co-founders of Libin in Australia, is in Kevin Hines's, uh movie, The Ripple Effect. And he Uh, I met him a few years ago and I remember sending him an email because we became friends where I guess maybe it was last year, it might've been the year before where I was suicidal again while I was creating this network. And I had sent him an email about how I had gotten through this really rough time. It was a, there was a lot of trauma going on because, you know, my mother's side of the family and her have their own major issues as well. And um, I remember sending that to that email to Sam and saying, you know, but I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this time. I said it to a few other people too. But um, I guess for me, being able to 
run this company and maybe from the outside in some ways it looks like I have my act together or whatever it made me think of like Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and these people who from the outside society looked at and thought wow they have it all together I re I resonated with that um, and then them still wanting to not be here because that's how I've felt until now so I I never would have checked a box on any sheet at a at a at a um, intake at a mental health center saying, "Are you feeling suicidal?" I just never would have done that because I have it, quote unquote, too much together on the outside. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I have to notice that we met this year, and this is your best year ever. So yes. I'm not I'm not saying I'm taking credit for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god frank i almost said you'd kill me but i figured that's probably not appropriate for what we're talking no. about now but um but yeah i mean you're you know you are a reflection of of the kind of people that i welcome into my life we had this conversation privately and so are you mark where i wouldn't have felt like i deserved to have people like you in my life last year well, I was talking to Larry, is it Rifkin? Yes. Rifkin? Yes. And he goes, so you've uh, known, um, apparently you've known Kristen a lot longer than we have. And I said, yeah, about three weeks. What? <laughs> you know, the way she talks, you really? Three weeks? Well, you know, fast friends. That's right. Yeah. So Kristen, uh, can I make a suggestion for you? Sure. You know, because, uh, you know, I, I know something about this the world of the dark night of the soul. It's a suggestion, an exercise. You can try it. You don't have to. Um, uh, if you have a choice of blaming yourself uh, when you were younger, or saying this must be something awful about you, or experiencing unspeakable horror and terror that's unrelenting horror terror unrelenting and there's no safety from it because the person who would provide safety is the one doing it to you so mm -hmm. those are choices there's no one between horror or terror that is paralyzing or well i'll blame myself you know I'm, I'll, I'll make sense out of this yes so here's the exercise I'd like you to do. I'd like you to get a picture of yourself when you were, uh, what age is we talking? You said five, 12? Well, she's on my fridge looking at me. I have a picture of me at that age and I look at her every day. So what I would like you to do, uh, take that picture, um, put it by your bedside or by a couch and every day, I want you to look at that picture, look into her eyes close your eyes and cross your arms and and what you're going to be feeling under your arms is her being frozen stiff from horror and terror and just like i told you when i dealt with suicidal people i'm going to go and keep you company in the dark night of the soul so at the very least it becomes a little bit warmer and 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 safe. It'll be safe in the dark night of the soul. So it's going to be warm and no one's going to take advantage of you in the dark. Right. 
And I'd like you to imagine that and go through that exercise and what you're feeling. I mean, I'm crossing my arms right now to sort of feel it. I'm closing my eyes, but I'm imagining that under, you know, that my body right under my crossed arms, which is my abdomen, I'm actually imagining, since we're all doing this together, I'm actually imagining it's, it's little Kristen, who's five or six, with that picture. And my arms crossed on top of my belly, it's a perfect empathic fit. I'm not squeezing in saying, will you get better already? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not rushing to unfold my arms and, you know, go check my Twitter feed. And it's just an exercise of, I remember I talked about how we're half-baked by our nurture, uh, by right. our nature. And so this is a chance to fully bake you <laughs> and, and, and just visit her. Um, uh, did I ever share with you something I call the piano story? No. Mm -mm. Did I share that with you, Frank? No. Uh. Okay. Do, do I have a th three, three or four minutes? Uh, my story is people Absolutely. Even though I talk very slowly. My shows are a 50-minute hour because that's what therapy sessions usually are. So <laughs> feel free. Yeah. How about the cliff notes? Uh... <laughs> no. I'm kidding. Share it. Share it. And I want you to resonate with it, both of you, but especially you, Kristen. So this little boy, we'll call him Jimmy, and Jimmy didn't live in the happiest of homes. And he'd come back from school, and he'd go into the basement, and in the basement was an abandoned grand piano, actually a baby grand piano, and it was in the corner. And Jimmy would go there in the basement, and he, he would sit under there, and he would stare up at the ebony and ivory. Uh, he wouldn't see ebony and ivory. He'd see plywood. And he'd just sit there, and he'd lean against the wall or one of the legs and he'd just be tapping on the brass pedals and he would just sort of steer up there because he, he, he didn't fit anywhere and the home seemed unhappy. And then once upon a time he's there and a, a young man in probably his late thirties is down rummaging through the, uh, the basement and sees him and he comes over to Jimmy and in the, and Jimmy gets nervous. Who is this person? What's he going to do? And so Jimmy is, is, is just sort of shaking his legs and feeling nervous. And the man in just the right key, and I mean that, you know, uh, uh, as a pun, the right key, he leans under the piano and he didn't say, what's wrong? Uh, come on out of there. We'll go do something. He looks at Jimmy and in just the right key, he says, mind if I join you? And the man gets under the piano and they're and he's not crowding Jimmy. Their, their legs are, aren't even touching. They're like 90 degrees, you know, crisscross. And so this is a child story. And three months later, Jimmy's, you know, starting to look at the man. In, uh, oh, what, oh, what he says to the man, when the man says, mind if I join you, Jimmy says, suit yourself. Man comes, sits down there. Three months later, uh, Jimmy's interested in the man and says, what are you doing here? And the man says, you didn't look like you should be alone. When Jimmy you know, shakes it off, breaks eye contact, says, okay, whatever you want. Another three months pass. This is six months. And he says to the man, uh, is this normal? And the man says, what do you mean? Well, you know, I go to school and I come home and I come here and I sit under this piano for hours. 
I don't go upstairs because, you know, there's arguing, there's all kinds of things going on. Is this normal? And again, the man looks at him in just the right key. Their eyes connect in just the right way. And the man says with a smile, it's not typical. And then three months later, Jimmy is just looking at the guy. He's not even looking at the piano. Mm. He's, a, he's just looking at the guy. And he says to him, uh, do I ever get better? And the man, and he's really checking out. He's looking for one scintilla of lies in that man. And the man looks at him in just the exact way and smiles and says, absolutely. And Jimmy is just checking him out and says, well, how do you know that? And the man smiles him and says, because I'm you and we got out. So I was that boy under the piano. Hmm. And that's the way I do therapy. <laughs> well, and I got to tell you, Mark, uh, I said nobody could have talked me out of killing myself. I think I was wrong. Yeah. I think you could. I think you could have pulled it off. So what are you thinking, Frank? That you that yeah that talking to you, I might have been. You know, I might have. Uh, I, I didn't think anybody could stop me, but I think if we'd had a conversation and you had, you know, done your your thing with the channeling and the you know, the imagery that perhaps you could have stayed my hand. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Same here. And I mean, I've had, obviously I haven't killed myself and I haven't um, attempted suicide uh, come close, but I, I haven't attempted suicide. So I've, I've, uh, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm still here, but um, yeah, that those kinds of conversations, I, it's funny. I, one of our other podcasters, Dr. Paolo Molino, he's in uh, Italy and we became friends when I was in Florence for a month after my stepfather passed. And um, we are now doing some work together on Skype around me between the ages of five and 12. And um, we had a conversation uh, a, that's similar to what you were saying, Mark, um, this morning, and he pointed out to me, you know, the whole thing with you and your horse, because I just, I got a horse for the first time in my life last year. Every time you're with her, uh, your horse, you're with her, the girl that's on your refrigerator in that picture. And oof, that was powerful, powerful stuff. Well, you know, the weirdest thing, and, and, and I, and I, look, you can try the exercise I mentioned. Um, Absolutely. I did. I did it while you were saying it. I was sitting with my <laughs> arms crossed and I was doing it as you said it. Because yeah, I'll tell you, a weird thing is happening in my life. Uh, I've had seven mentors. They've all died. I call them the Dead Mentor Society. Started out with someone you know, who really helped me get through med school and saw, saw goodness and future in me and went to bat for me at his own expense. So those, those mm -hmm. are the kind of elements, someone who, when you feel you have nothing to offer, sees that you have something, something special and something that the future needs and they go to bat for you. So those are all the key elements, but something weird has been happening. Maybe it's my, I'm aging and maybe it's because I decided to, after, my last mentor was a guy named Warren Bennis, big leadership guy, died three years ago. And I said, well, should I get another mentor? And I thought, eh, I've had enough. Maybe I'll just be the guy. Mm. So I'd been mentoring yep. people, uh, you know, maybe 10 people up until the time he died. And now it's up to 30. And there are various frequencies. And But what's weird 
because I didn't know what would happen if I didn't have another mentor. Uh, but I'm starting to see me through the eyes of my mentors. I'm starting to see that I actually might have some value. Hmm. I'm looking at me through their eyes. You do. It's, it's, it's a good hurt that I'm feeling right now. I mean, I'm yeah. looking at me and thinking, you know, he's, he never was a loser. It's too bad he felt that way. Or he, he never, he never was a bad kid or, and, and, and it's, and it's just weird to look at me through the eyes of my mentors. <laughs> so I'm leaning into it and it's, uh, and I'm suggesting you do the same, or you could try that exercise we talked about. But I really do like, because uh, I was trying it on as I was telling it to you. Uh, I was picturing, I don't, I don't see the picture of you, but I was picturing you at that young age. And, and I can tell you, Kristen, as I was telling you to do it, my arms were crossed. <laughs> I, I, I could feel my uh, stomach. I could feel it, it lying there. It was alive. It's breathing, but motionless. And, and, and I could feel the wish to just hang out with it and say, uh, you know, you know, wake up when you've slept enough. And when you wake right. up, it's going to be safe. And, uh, uh, and, and it's always available. And, um, and you're going to feel solid. You're going to feel solid from the inside out, even if you don't believe it. And so I, I hope you'll try doing that. Of course. I, yes. Like, I, I mean, that's, this year and, you know, a bit of, of last year, too, but I'm doing this network and and being someone that is an advocate for other advocates is such a empathic hit. It's unbelievable. It's everything. This is such a passion for me. And, you know, Frank, unfortunately, probably for him has to listen to me every day because we usually talk every day about <laughs> some new thing we're doing with the network. But, you know, I, it's, you know, you know, Frank, we get on the phone together and we're both like, yeah, well, maybe we'll tweak this and we'll do that. And, and it's so much fun. And it's so I really mean it when I when I say this to, you know, for listeners, for you to hear it. I know you know that because you know me so well, but it is so about the the hit and the the feeling of goodness about yourself. It was what you were talking about, Mark, um, you know, think about how your mentors look at you. When I think about how much support I can give to other people that are out there caring for other people, I can't even tell you what that does for my self-esteem. <laughs> it's in, there's no way anymore that I could feel bad about myself. There's just no way there's, it's not possible. I can laugh at a foible. I can go, yeah, I face planted on that. Or yeah, that, you know, I said something stupid on television, uh, but it's a laugh that comes out of me about it because there's just, it's just not possible for me to feel bad about myself anymore. And that's a great, great, great feeling. It's infectious in the best way. Absolutely. So this is a pretty good first date. We might have to do this again. <laughs> yes, we just might. So in terms of this film that's coming out, um, you know, or it's out, actually, it's out. So I want to find out, you know, we've got a couple minutes left. 
what was the impetus for creating it? How did you all get together, meet, decide to do this? How, how was that, you know, machination created? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I belong to an entrepreneurial group that, that I love, but it's all pedal to the metal. Uh, and, and it's interesting. They don't know what to do with me because to a certain extent, I'm the conscience of the group. Mm, and I can and, see. <laughs> and, and these are, and, and I like the energy. They're all doers, but you know, they're all, you know, there's a lot of, I'm sure ADD is probably, a, you know, I think to be a member, you have to have ADD uh, and, uh, or bipolar and all that. And every now and then I'll, I'll put something out to the community and normally it will get squelched because sometimes they'll say that is a, you know, uh, that's not what we're about. And I remember a couple of years ago, I said, you know, if we're a community of entrepreneurs and it's been going for some years and we like to talk about how we care about each other and we're helping each other, by my estimate, there's got to be at least a handful of people who've killed themselves that we don't know about because they go right. radio silent. They yep. disappear. We don't know where they are. And I said, if we're a community that cares about each other, I'm not sure what we should do, but if, if there is a dark side to this pedal to the metal, you know, life that we're living as we try to escape from the dark side, we need right. to do something. And so there are several people in this community that say, I'm so glad that you bring these things up, Mark. But when I bring them up or I post things into the community, maybe one out of 10 gets through. Right. And so, uh, so I, so it's one of these things where, and it's interesting, if I was creating an avatar for the community, they're glad I'm there, but they don't necessarily want to talk to me because if they talk to me, they might actually feel feelings. <laughs> and what I realize is a lot of entrepreneurs are always racing away from feeling feelings. Yes, they are. <laughs> and, and racing into activity. And in fact, someone I interviewed recently who's, and his podcast is up because uh, he's a serial entrepreneur. His son hung himself last year and it's changed mm -hmm. his life. His name is Jay Reed. And, and, uh, and when he discovered his son, and he has a dramatic TEDx talk, uh, his son left two messages, two notes. The first one is, here are my password codes. And the second note said, tell my story. Oh, my God. So he's doing a movie called Tell My Story. And if you look up Tell My Story or ChooseLife.org, you'll meet Jay Reed. And, and on the podcast with Jay, he told me, he said, you know, about a, a, at least a third of entrepreneurs are depressed. And I think it's more likely that they're bipolar depressed. And he said, I'm not sure that entrepreneurs get depressed from their companies failing uh, or is it that they are bipolar depressed first and race to be entrepreneurs to get away from it? Bingo. That's my, that's the whole point of my um, third Ted talk mental with benefits. Mm -hmm. So I think that's exactly what it is, is I think that down deep and, and I'm fashioning a blog, but if you, if you drill down to the, this group of people who like a badge of honor, walk around smiling, saying I'm unhirable, I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> Right. I can tell you during the years when they discovered they were unhirable, 
they weren't smiling all the time. They were surrounded by naysayers. They were surrounded by people who said, why do you have to be different? Uh, yep. They had They felt like losers. They felt like all these things. And what's happened is, uh, and sadly, there's lots of people who just didn't make it to the other side and they're no longer with us. But these entrepreneurs who have, it becomes, uh, that's their, uh, uh, you know, that's their ticket. And one of the points I made in the blog, and I think Jay will be into this because he holds himself accountable. And if you're an entrepreneur and what we're talking about is true, I'm, I, I, I've got to confront you um, because if you're an entrepreneur and it's true that you have your bipolar or bipolar depressed, you're 90% preoccupied, which means you can't connect with the, your family you love because when you're depressed, you're unconsolable. Any solutions people give you don't penetrate. So you can't connect with one of your kids who might be hurting. And then, of course, when you're on a roll and you feel invincible and you're addicted to momentum, you can't connect to them either. And so this is a challenge that I would point out to all you entrepreneurs. And I think Jay Reed would say, go for it, Mark. Because if you're like Jay Reed, and I hope you don't end up that way, and you're on vacation thinking, oh, life is great and it's terrific. And uh, you get a text message while you're, while you're having the time of your life with your wife that says, uh, uh, it's not your fault. You are amazing. I'm so sorry. Goodbye. Mm. Uh, I'm not trying to ruin your day if you're an entrepreneur. I'm trying to save your life so it doesn't turn out like Jay's. Right. Oh, it's a powerful, powerful story. Well, my as my mother would say on that happy note, I think <laughs> our time is up. That's right. Yes, it is. So, Mark, please tell our listeners where they can find the film, but also where they can find out more about you. Thank you. So you can, if you go to hashtag stay alive now, uh, that will take you to the YouTube channel, which I'd recommend going to because you can see the full documentary there, or it's carved up into eight swallowable chapters that are introduced, introduced by me, some are introduced by Kevin Hines, some are introduced by Reiko, uh, or go to stayalivevideo.com. And you can click on in the menu resources, and there's tons of resources. Uh, I do have a website called markgoulston.com. And uh, I'm, I may change this, but if you go there, and if you go to my LinkedIn profile, I'm listing myself as Elephant Hunter. I saw that. I was like, what on earth what? is this? <laughs> and um, I'll tell you, uh, I put it up a couple of weeks ago. I think, and I think I got a, I think I got a client. So I'm an elephant hunter, and the elephant meaning is an elephant in the room that's not being addressed. Oh, ah, okay. Yes. Yep. It's an elephant that's obvious. So for me, I feel so smart because I kind of thought that when I read it, but then I thought, no, I'm not going to read into, I'm not going to put my own stuff and project into whatever that means. But thank you for making me feel smart for a minute. <laughs> and me dumb. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you wear it so well, Frank. But, uh, Thank you. 
Let's yeah, I don't do see with a I don't see with a gun hunting elephant. I just see it talking to death. That's all I'm thinking. Well, the uh, elephant, okay, so for me, the elephant in the room of suicide prevention is you got to go where they're at because they can't come where you're at, and find a way to lean into it, at least for a little bit before you start giving them solutions and advice. Uh, because I'm a medical doctor and I view suicidal feeling as an abscess in the deepest core of your being. And anyone who knows anything about wounds and abscesses, you have to go in and you clean out the abscess. And our body knows that when you clean out an abscess and you put a drain in there, it granulates or heals from the inside out. So I have a simple view of being suicidal is you go in to where it hurts most. I actually have a vehicle, one of the chapters, chapter seven of Stay Alive, is I talk about the seven words. And this will be a whole other show, but the seven words when you're trying to get through to someone, even if they say, I don't want to talk about my feelings. The seven words are, and you say them, seven words, and they'll say, what? And you say it this way, just seven words, listen to me. Hurt, afraid, angry, ashamed, alone, lonely, tired. Pick one. And when you look at the segment that I did with uh, Kevin Hines, he smiles and he says, all of them. Yeah. But then you're in. Then you're in and you're keeping them company there. And my belief is once you're in and you keep people company there, you leave an empathic drain in there and they granulate out with hope. Yeah. And you don't rush the drain. You just hang in there. Uh, now that may upset family. And, and uh, I, <laughs> I remember one of my patients said, what do, what do I tell my parents? Because the parents say, what's he doing? Well, he's keeping me company in hell. And the parents said, <laughs> Well, he, uh, and, and the parents said, that's a lot of money to keep you company in hell. You know, uh, we can keep you company there. And the, uh, and the kid said to his parents, no, no, you're the one who created the hell. <laughs> oh. But you sort of get what I'm getting at here. Absolutely. That, that's it's or go to Amazon. You can find my seven books at Amazon, Mark Goulston, and, uh, uh, and I hope you'll check them out and check me out. And finally, I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, and where I talk to people, what's what's what matters most to you? And I'm going to have both. Well, I've already had you on, Frank. I'm going to have you on, Kristen. What matters most to you in life right now? And mm. tell me the story that led up to that mattering most to you. And so that's what My Wake Up Call podcast is about. And hope people will check it out. Fantastic. And I want to make sure everyone knows where they can find the amazing Frank King. They can go to thementalhealthcomedian.com. Gentlemen, thank you both for being on my show. And I'm honored and blessed to have you both be a part of my lives. Thank you. My lives. My life. <laughs> I'm not a cat. I only have one life. <laughs> <laughs> Having some sibling rivalry here. So, Frank, uh, so, how, so how often are you in contact with Kristen here? Huh? huh? Pretty much daily. Yes. Uh, I, I got to up mine. I mean, I, I, I miss the we day. We talk every you. day pretty much, Mark. Uh, Frank yeah, I and I just talk multiple times a day. 
Yeah, as I say in radio, um, it's all about time spent listening. So I'm guessing I, I talk to her more often, but I'm guessing not at length. So. Yeah, well, we're talking busy work too. But anyway, listeners, thank you so much, our listening family, for tuning in again. This week is a highlight week about suicide awareness and prevention. So it was really important for us to do this show today and get this out. Um, you know, the week of uh, first week of April in 2019. And thanks for tuning into all our shows on Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.